0: The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or to view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. Uh, and
1: it's mostly to get you get you set up, you know, how, how Stellar works, how you set up your own website, You know, make sure you have a camera that you can use. Make sure you have a way to transfer your images to your program. And as I said, it's completely up to you what environment you want to use. You want to use Java, Flash, C++, uh, Photoshop, Basic, Japanese, whatever language you want to use for your programming. Uh, It's perfectly fine. Uh, But make sure you show me your own images. Not images captured from somebody else or from the Internet, but something that you have taken yourself, some photos you have taken yourself. Any other questions about assignment? And so we'll have, uh, for the graduate, uh, for 531 we have four assignments, so three more after this. And for, uh, for 131 we have two more assignments after this. While well, this is getting set up, uh, I'm just passing around a uh, UV uh, light demo. Who has it right now? I have.
0: Yeah. Okay, they're, Yeah. They're
1: yeah, awesome. So why don't you why don't you demonstrate the concept to everybody first? So when it goes around, they know what to look for. Okay. So, you
0: got
1: okay. to show the magic trick. You got to show its white first. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sorry. So you see, so you see almost nothing, and then we lay it on. There are actually a lot of things that do this too. My driver's license, you know, Massachusetts driver's license has the Massachusetts state seal in it. Is that the yeah. full? Cool? Yeah.
1: And usually most credit cards do. It's an annex. So this was a graph paper in uh, 2007 on how to create um, uh, ultraviolet inks. Inks that respond to ultraviolet light. Um, Def- color.
0: Yeah, definitely the car technologies are older, but um, yeah, this is color. Yeah. You actually see in many passports and, and visas in particular, mm-hmm. especially of the smaller the country is, the more colorful the UV <laughs> image of their visa is. <laughs> and, and I but you sometimes see red and green and, and sort of purplish colors. But I've actually never seen never seen a full, basically a full color thing like this before. Yeah. So that's pretty neat. Yeah.
1: And also, you know, your your uh if, if you go to a club, you know, a you lot of them use UV light, So if you haven't used the right detergent on your clothing, or yeah. if you had a stain that you think it doesn't look in the visible light, but <laughs> you go to a, go to a place where you want to be hip. I <laughs> uh,
0: actually have a UV light LED on my key. Oh, so before you go in
1: the, you stand in the line, you, you check yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're cool. No, for, no, you're no, cool no. for this place.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so, yeah, you know, if, you're, if, you, uh, if, you, if you become expert at uh, playing it with ultraviolet light and you like to have this in your, in your hand all the time, you know, there are lots of jobs. You could be the guy who checks, uh, you know, at the entry of the, at the airport, at the security line, you know, he's checking your car, or you could be a bouncer. Lots of yeah. job opportunities. Or, or a
0: banker, right? A lot, a lot of the dollar bills. That's right. Twenty dollar bills and not have a, have a UV
1: uh, strip. Exactly. So the theme for today is going to be lighting and different kind of illumination, and hopefully it will make you think. With uh, today, the budget is I think less than five thousand uh, dollars, unlike last time. Uh, I think it was well over sixty k last time, uh, and it will show you interesting things you can do with uh, with illumination. my um, reboot, and come back up. Uh, While this is getting set up, again, let me show you some other toys. So, uh, uh, my uh, collaborator, uh, and Rohit, is, if you can just hold the book and show it to everybody. This is the book that I and uh, my co author, Jack Tumblin, uh, we're coming out with uh, called Computational Photography. And uh, the way Jack likes to describe the, the scenario today for, for um, cameras and photography is, uh, you know, it's a It's a lion who's been shackled for a long time. And, you know, if you just put this lion out of the cage, uh, it doesn't know what to do. It just stands there and just looks around. You know, even an unshackled lion doesn't know how to exploit the freedom. Um, And uh, I think it's the same situation with, with photography today. You know, we have gone from film to digital. But even today, when we think about cameras, they're trying to mimic how this camera will look like a traditional film camera, a digital camera. Even cell phone makers who have complete freedom on how to create, uh, how to create cameras and form factors, they're trying to create an experience that's somewhat similar to a film camera. You know, like a, they, have a, uh, they have a shutter at the same location and they expect you to hold it with two hands uh, and so on. Like, very few of them allow single-handed interaction. You know, I just want a camera that I can squeeze or I can tap. Uh, or I can shake and then after 5 seconds just take a photo you know it can do all these other things but they still want us to do this two-handed interaction where everything is stable the button is off-center so you cannot even hold it with one hand you have to hold it with two hands so you can you know press the shutter and so on so it's, this is how world works you know they, you always are uh, dealing with with the with the with the legacy of what, what came before and a, really a classic example something that makes me you know is uh, really squirm, is look at this beautiful camera that came out from uh, Nikon uh, in mid 90s. And this was one of the first kind of uh, digital camera that professionals thought it's okay to to be seen with. Uh, Because they had this whole debate about, you know, our digital, it'll never catch up with the resolution of the film. These are the same people who still hold on to the LP saying CDs are digital and they don't sound the same as uh, LP records. But anyway, this camera, which is supposed to be digital, if you cut it open, what you realize is there's still place. This is a digital camera. There's still place for for a film cartridge. Okay. All they did was they removed the part where the film cartridge is and where the film slips, slapped on a digital sensor, built extra electronics at the bottom, added some you know electronic connectors. But why bother? Because you know, people still like the same form factor and all that. There's still a place for film in there. It's just mind-blowing. And this is how it works. And uh, so a lot of times when people say, wow, you know, a billion people have cameras and what, what is going to change about it? Uh, hopefully through this class you'll realize it's, it's, so, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a wide, wide open world. Uh, there are certain fields that peak, there's a lot of innovation and research and then they mature, and there's not much uh, more uh, uh, exciting about those fields. Uh, But there are certain fields that just continue to grow, and uh, imaging is just one of them. So just look for the the, the space for cartridge here, and if you look sideways, you know, this is where the film uh, wraps around. So you can take pictures of this and add to the notes. I'm just gonna spend the first few minutes Going through uh, some of the, the uh, some of the fast-forward uh, preview items uh, we didn't get to cover last time, and then come back and uh, talk about this topic. All right, we were here somewhere last time, uh, where you can create these cameras where instead of having uh, a expansion. Uh, instead of having an out-of-focus blur that extends like a disk, uh, you can create lenses where when it goes out of focus, the the point square function actually rotates. This is the rotational point square function. And again, this is just a teaser, so we will, we will study this into detail. And this is very powerful, whether it's for photography or for scientific imaging or for real-time and CI applications and so on. Um, and then we discussed about the duality of... of uh, uh, particles and, and waves, and we'll be discussing that a little bit. Uh, and then we'll talk about this new types of cameras that are being designed, where you can create a 35mm lens, uh, including the sensor. Uh, the whole package can be built with the thickness of just about 5 millimeters. Uh, and so they're building these lenses where uh, light comes in from the, the annulus around uh, the edges of the of the of the lens, and light actually reflects around and the image is formed uh, in the center and this is how many of the uh, the sony of um, course the Sony brand for cameras um, oh, Cyberhop yes uh, works as well where the the sensor is actually in, in the ca- for the sony cameras. The, the lens is over here, but the sensor is actually all the way back in the bottom. So, light reflects around, and the, the image is captured uh, at the bottom. That's why the cameras are so thin. Uh, so, the, the dream of a flat camera is, is something we'll be, we'll be looking for. And again, by uh, making flat, I mean, the, the new iPod Nano is, what, 0.25 inches thick? It, it, it still has a camera, and that's because they're using crappier and crappier lenses, you know. Um, So instead of just creating a straightforward design where you have a lens and behind that you have a sensor, if you have a lens where with addition of these concentric uh, reflectors and images found in the middle, then effectively you have a a 35mm lens with optical parts that's folded in. So we'll be looking at a lot of these interesting designs that uh, I'm sure you will see in, in, in products coming up. Uh, and then we look at, again, some really interesting lenses. So a traditional lens is uh, you know, some form of a convex or concave lens, uh, but the new lenses are just flat. Their front and back profile is just flat. So it's very easy to stack them, very easy to put them uh, in modern devices. Uh, and they work, the way they work is not by changing the thickness of glass, but by changing the refractive index. So the refractive index is high in the center, and very low uh, in the edges. So by doing that, they're effectively creating a lens. And that's actually how uh, a lot of flatbed scanners are built as well. So we'll be studying that. Uh, very briefly, photonic crystals uh, and how they will change imaging. Uh, Schleren photography. Uh, uh, we saw the picture uh, last time. We'll study how uh, Schlieren photography can be, uh, can be built. Uh, polarization underwater. Uh, And there are these really interesting cameras that are coming up. Uh, I can see if the lights can play around. Uh, See the Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. slightly better. Um, So these are uh, polarization cameras where instead of adding a polarizing filter uh, in the front of the lens, the polarization filters are actually on the bare mosaic. So a typical camera, as you will study, will have uh, very tiny RGB filters in front of each pixel. So every alternate pixel has red, green, and blue filter. Uh, And here actually they have uh, different orientations of polarization, vertical orientation, horizontal orientation, plus 45 and and minus 45 degree orientation for polarization. And from that, uh, it turns out under certain lighting conditions such as sunlight, uh, light that's reflected from vehicles or from faces, is uh, partially polarized, and they can look at how the light is polarized in all these four different directions, and from that estimate the orientation of the surface or the surface normal, and from that they can create a 3D model. So it's pretty exciting. They're getting a lot of money from from the government for detecting vehicles in uh, you know in uh, complex uh, complex backgrounds. So this might come in a in a in a photo in a consumer camera. It might come for scientific imaging. Uh, and there's some really interesting sensors I think we talked about this very briefly last time Uh, compressive sensing we'll we'll spend a lot of time discussing uh, compressive sensing there's a lot of hype about it we'll try to understand where it works where it fails and what's the the power of compressive sensing and where it can be exploited Uh, some other bizarre uh, uh, photos you may have seen uh, are near a photo finish Uh, in in sports uh, photography. So this photo looks like an ordinary uh, picture. Uh, Here's the winner of this, uh, I believe, uh, uh, 100 meter dash. Uh, (coughs) But if you look at people behind, they have really strange anatomy. Look look down here. Anybody has a guess what's going on? There's another one with even more distortions. Look at the leg of this... uh, and that's the finish line. This is the photo finish uh, picture in sports photography. Yes? Because the sensor is scanning line by line. Exactly. The whole photo is not taken at a single instant. Uh, the photo is taken actually one line at a time. Uh, as you can see, uh, all the athletes, when they try to finish, because the shoulder, the, the, the moment you cross the shoulder when it matters. So as you can see, when they finish, they all have their body uh, leaned forward, right? Uh, so clearly, not all of them are finishing at the same instant. Uh, but, so this particular line, for example, captured first, and then the next one, and the next one, and the next one. So this whole picture was captured over a whole second. But it's actually running at... 2000 frames per second. So in one second you are capturing 2000 lines and they are simply placed together to construct uh, this picture. And this is very useful because uh, for the judges, for the referees, they can just look at this picture and figure out exactly when uh, every player uh, had crossed uh, the finish line. And it's a nice summary of the finish of the race. Uh, But not finish at any given instant, but finish of every instant. And so, if you look in the background, um, you'll see that, you know, there are no vehicles, there are no big signs, uh, same with, the, uh, with the, the, the track here, and that's because we're, co- we're capturing the same exact line in the camera and just capturing the same one again. So, imagine taking a photo, throwing away all the pixels ex- except the center line, taking another picture after one by one, two thousandth of a second, again just keeping the center line and just putting it together. So, so very interesting photography uh, and uh, I believe I saw a product on, uh, uh, maybe it was an iPhone app or one of the mobile phone cameras where they're creating this new kind of fun photography where instead of taking a photo in a single instant, you release the shutter and it actually does a very slow rolling shutter. So it's actually a video camera that exposes the, the first line, then the second line, then the third line and so on every frame so I can, I can release the picture and I can simply turn in front of it and what you will see is the top of the picture my forehead is being seen in the middle is the side of my my uh, my face and at the bottom you know it's the back of my head so it's these very beautiful pictures uh, that can be created with this but you know in this class maybe you can convert a video camera into some other interesting projection of this X, Y, T volume right because a video camera is X, Y, pixels and we're uh, capturing it over time. So it's a three-dimensional data set. And a final photo is actually some 2D projection of that. And this is one type of project, one way of projecting it. But this study how There's some other ways, uh, either for scientific imaging or for, for artistic photography. Um, question? What about
0: of lenses
1: they uh, use They usually use standard lenses uh, because they still have to create... Uh, If you're looking at a very narrow uh, line of uh, view direction, you still have to form an extremely high-quality image. So you cannot use a cylindrical lens or or anything like that. So they still use a traditional lens for that. Uh, Is this the main
2: difference between a uh, video camera and standard cameras?
1: uh, In terms of it's... uh, I mean, there are several differences when it comes to electronics, of course. So, uh, for example, a camera like this uh, uh, and, uh, for, on a cheap device is actually a video camera. And when you release the shutter, uh, or any cheap digital camera is actually, still camera is actually a video camera. And when you release the shutter, it takes the next frame and captures that as a real photo and gives it to you. But it's constantly running as a video camera, and that's why on the on the viewfinder you can see the video of what's being captured. So, so even if they're selling it as a digital still camera, and even if they don't have a video mode, it's actually a video camera. And then there are more purists uh, who build, you know, SLRs and so on, and they say, no, no, it's, it is a, a digital still camera, and you must see through an optical viewfinder. And but you know, just like the people who make uh, the camera we saw, those those people are a minority, and uh, all this snobbishness about when you have an SLR camera, you must have a mirror, is also gone, uh, fortunately. Uh, so that's kind of the fundamental difference between uh, still camera and, and video camera. But there's still an issue of bandwidth, and that comes to storage and processing, how quickly you can uh, capture, even if you're exposing the whole sensor. Uh, so you know, typically you might have a digital still camera that's 6 megapixel, but the video is only less than a megapixel. And that's mainly because of bandwidth and storage and so on. So, but it's not really, it's just an electronics issue. So there's no, there's no reason to, uh, in the future, to be all fused into. Once the bandwidth and storage issues become um, uh, not so critical, they'll just fuse into one single device. There are already cameras, I believe, that once you release the shutter, you could be in the video mode and then you release the shutter, it just st- stores some of those frames. So, that's, uh, that's straightforward. So, in terms of optics and, and image formation, there's no difference. Uh, there's some other differences, of course, in terms of um, noise. So, if you, you know that for a digital still camera, when you reduce the shutter, uh, you know, usually a mechanical shutter opens and closes to you know, integrate the light for a finite duration. But clearly, for a video camera, there's no mechanical shutter opening and closing for each frame. So why don't they just do that for digital still cameras? You know, why not have a, you know, why not get rid of the mechanical shutter altogether uh, and just do an electronic shutter? And again, purists want that sound, you know, but there's absolutely no reason uh, to do that. And nowadays it's true that a lot of cameras have focal plane shutters that um, uh, sometimes are mechanical and sometimes are just electronic. Is there absolutely
0: no reason to have a mechanical shutter?
1: So, exactly. So, sometimes you have issues like um, uh, just thermal noise. So, if you're taking a picture that's 15 seconds long, uh, then you don't know how the camera is going to behave, how much noise it's going to collect over 15 seconds. So, uh, a camera maker has a very good model of what the noise will be if you take a very short exposure photo, like under a second. But if it's a 15 second long exposure, depending on what conditions you're in, how warm your hand is, you know, all these things are going to change the noise properties on the, on the sensor. So typically, they'll take two pictures. They'll take a 15-second long picture uh, with, you know, the shutter open. And then they'll take a 15-second long exposure with the shutter closed. And they'll subtract the two images to get rid of the noise. Because, you know, there could be noise that varies over the, the, the frame of the sensor. So every once in a while, you have to, it's good to have a completely dark conditions created mechanically. Uh, but again, that, that will change over time. And I'm sure they'll come up with solutions where you don't have to do this extra measurement to figure out the noise in the system of doing the subtraction. I mean, communication world, right? I mean, you, you have to deal with noise all the time and you don't always transmit the data twice. Uh, so I'm sure we can come up with some intelligent encoding. Maybe every, every fifth pixel is being used for measuring noise and other pixels are being used for capturing photo. So, there will be some interesting encoding mechanisms there, I would imagine. Uh, the CT block project, that's uh, Gaurav Gar, he was my intern. Uh, and this was a project that started with uh, uh, Augusto, um, I forget his last name, uh, Augusto Roman, I think. Um, and they started this project when they were grad student uh, at, at uh, Stanford, uh, did an internship at Google. Uh, where they came up with an idea of mounting a camera um, in a truck and just, you know, driving in in Polo Alto and uh, again using a very similar idea of just taking the center pixel of every video frame. So if you can imagine, you take thousands of pictures and take only the center column of each image and just put it together, then you have basically created this orthographic camera. It's a panorama that just goes on and on for a facade of a street. Uh, And they applied some other interesting algorithm because uh, if you have streets or people or cars that are moving or in front of the part that you care about, then because of the parallax between multiple views, you can eliminate them as well. So they put all these things together. That was their uh, city block project. And uh, you you get very interesting distortion artifacts and so on. Uh, But it looks beautiful. And what Augusto tells me is that this is what they pitched for Google Street View. Uh, as, as a representation because right now it's all discrete. Right, You jump between one bubble to the next bubble uh, and what he tells me is that the reason why they didn't choose what he did in his thesis and they went for this traditional bubble model uh, is apparently in user studies they realize that uh, people get really confused when you show, when you show them pictures like this. Uh, people are more comfortable with jumping to the next bubble and then looking around and then jumping to the next bubble and looking around. It's kind of odd to me because I would be more comfortable looking at something like this Uh, but this is what they have right now Uh, of course the new uh, Google Street View um, system actually has a lot of additional sensors they have GPS they have compass they have um, a a lidar that's actually taking 3D images of all the cities Uh, so if a Google truck is going by you know cover your eyes because they're shooting lasers (laughs) I'm just kidding Uh, it's eye safe uh, but they have 3D models. And the reason why the 3D models are not available to us uh, as on, on the browser uh, is because they haven't figured out how to use this, you know, tera, tera petabytes of data and how to transfer that and make it available uh, in a streaming fashion. Uh, but again, when that problem is solved, we will see, uh, um, you know, 3D models uh, that are exploited for all kinds of interesting purposes. And uh, this year I was on the SIGGRAPH committee, and there were just a ton of papers on what you can do with street-level image room because this is becoming a very hot topic right now, uh, which is good and bad. If it's already hot, it's probably not worth pursuing it, because there are too many people doing it. Uh, but for a course project, it's perfectly fine to do, and uh, you might be able to come up with a great idea for, for uh, a SIGGRAPH paper. Uh, we'll be studying a lot about uh, motion deep This is actually a picture we took in Kendall Square. Um, and uh, we have cameras now that can take highly blurred images, motion blurred images, uh, and recover a um, sharp photo in post-capture. So, last time we saw focus deblurring, uh, this is uh, motion deblurring, uh, And the way it works, and here's another example where you might have, you know, uh, an aerial imagery scenario. An aircraft that's flying uh, sufficiently low and with a long, sufficiently long exposure you'll get a blurred photo. Um, but again, using this technique I'm going to describe in the next slide, uh, you can do uh, motion blurring. things for uh, cars. And the basic idea was, uh, instead of taking a photo where when you release the shutter, uh, you open the shutter and keep it open for say 100 milliseconds and close the shutter, and get one photo. Instead of that, you release the shutter and then you open and close it multiple times. And at the end, you still get one photo, but it has stopped and started integration of light multiple times in between, okay? And of course, if you do that with a mechanical shutter, uh, you'll probably void the warranty and the camera will be unusable uh, very quickly. So instead of a mechanical opening and closing of the shutter, we used uh, an LCD, actually a ferroelectric LCD, uh, that becomes transparent or opaque. So when it's, uh, when the LCD is, of course, uh, opaque, uh, you block the transmission of light, and when it's transparent, uh, the light goes through. Uh, and that encodes the motion of the object. So if you have uh, a point light with a traditional camera, if I move the light very fast, you will see a streak in the photo. But with this camera, you will see... Uh, 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 like, a, uh, like a ham code you say dash dot dot dash dot uh, in, the, in, the, in the screen and that just preserves uh, high frequency information in the scene and as we will study later it allows you to uh, reconstruct the original image and recover the sharp features and we will study this in the frequency domain, we will study this using linear algebra and we will also study this using pure intuition so those of you with different backgrounds hopefully will be very comfortable with many of these concepts now, this is something, this is a very worrying trend uh, for sensors. So, 1994, pixels were about 9 microns wide, okay? Uh, a, a human hair is about 50 microns, so it's in a one-fifth of the width of a human hair. Um, and the, the way you sense the color is you put a filter, green, blue, uh, green, red. So, uh, and that's the bare mosaic. Uh, and we study this later again but over time the size of this pixel is shrinking because you want to buy a phone that has 5 megapixel but it has really tiny uh, uh, focal length and uh, uh, so you know the sensor is shrinking and the camera makers want to produce a lot of sensors from a given wafer so you have a wafer of a certain size you want to slice, slice it and dice it and then put it into each of the cameras. The more you slice it, the more pieces you will get, of course. And so the logic is, if you keep shrinking these pixels, you can keep shrinking the size of the overall image sensor. So right now we are down to 2 micron, 1.5 micron. I just saw a paper from Sony uh, yesterday where they're claiming 0.9 microns. Uh, And what's the wavelength of visible light? 0.4 to 0.2. 0.4 0.4 to 0.7 microns. So let's write this down because we'll, we'll be talking about this all the time. So this is, uh, this is 50 micron. That's the uh, width of your hair. This is 10 micron, uh, 1 micron. And it's in here. One times ten to minus six meters. Uh, five hundred nanometers and uh, blue is here, green is here, roughly, the and red is here. About 400 or four hundred pixel. So, so that that's the wavelength of light all the way around here. Now the pixel itself is 0.9 micron. Right? And the wavelength of light is in visible words, really, really close. Uh, and so this is a challenge. And as we'll study later, uh, because of the limitations of uh, diffraction and other laws of physics, uh, it's getting very challenging to do to this imagery with its, this type of sensors. And again, we'll study how people are thinking about this uh, in a very traditional way. Uh, and some other teams are actually trying to exploit uh, these uh, sensors in uh, completely unique ways. Now, there's a, there's a new design where People are claiming uh, that by using a pixel that's less than one micron. Uh, By the way, compared to this pixel, let's say this is 10 microns and this is one micron. The amount of light one pixel will capture is reduced by what factor? By a factor of 100, right? So with my phone in 1994, if everything was the same, if I could take a picture in 100 milliseconds, now, how long will be my exposure time? It will be ten seconds, right? But clearly, over the last ten years, the exposure time of a typical photo hasn't changed. You know, otherwise you'll have a, otherwise you'll have a, a camera shake because of, uh, you know, uh, because of the jitter in your, uh, in your device. Uh, so clearly, the technology has improved where the pixels have hundred times less area to capture light. And still we're able to get photos with roughly the same exposure time. So in a way, the light gathering capability has improved by a factor of 100. Not really, but it's, it's about that order of magnitude and a lot of software tricks that are being played to uh, kind of compensate for, for the noise uh, in such tiny nice sensors. So we'll study this issue quite a bit. Uh, one common theme throughout uh, imaging is uh, the two things you need. You need a lot of light. Uh, you're always, you always want a lot of photons to take a good picture. And number two is you would like to have negative light. And this may sound strange, but people who work in, in radio and other fields, they are blessed with negative energy. And people who work in optics always have to worry about creating negative light. And as, as we'll go through the class, you'll we'll realize that if somebody, somebody invents negative energy for light, uh, you know, it's like an invention of zero to just represent nothing negative light yeah a photon that has negative energy do you have an idea (laughs) (laughs) think about it very hard you'll get multiple Nobel Um, prizes alright and then there's some really interesting um, uh, biological creatures that uh, we'll be studying, uh, animal eyes. So a dragonfly or a krill has, you know, this compound eyes that, you know, this is the simulation of what this guy is looking at. You know, it's probably creating thousands of images, probably not of that good quality. Uh, and they're used for very interesting applications. So, so we'll study that as well. Uh, so there's a project called Tombo. Uh, in Japan, which I believe stands for, I mean, it stands for Thin Observation Module by Bound Optics but the word tombo means uh, shrimp in Japanese. What does the word tombo mean? In- dragonfly. Sorry? Dragonfly. Sorry, dragonfly. So it's a, it's a nice play on, uh, on the dragon. I should remember this. It's right on the slide before. Uh, and so again, you have a single sensor and you have uh, multiple tiny lenses, and this is placed really, really close uh, to the sensor. And the idea is that if you have an object and you have plenty of tiny sensors right, right next to the plenty of tiny lenses next to the sensor, then again you'll form thousands of images, and from <coughs> that you may be able to do something interesting. Uh, we'll also look at uh, time-of-flight cameras we saw last time. uh, One of the uh, 3DB cameras that uses time of flight to compute depth. So, how fast does light travel? Three times 10 to the 8 meters per second. But what did we see last time? One one foot per nanosecond. And uh, sound? One millisecond. One foot per millisecond. Okay. Just good numbers to remember. Uh, and so these cameras will study how they work. And it's quite possible that uh, this type of cameras will be available in really cheap devices. I'm talking about devices that are less than $100. Uh, so Microsoft Natal is, uh, is likely to have a 3D depth sensing camera very soon. And uh, Sony iToy is also likely to have one. In fact, Sony iToy um, has been... Uh, Richard Marks was the kind of spiritual leader of uh, iToy has told me multiple times that they will come out with a 3D camera anytime now. Uh, and they'll be testing it. They just want to make sure the cost is low enough to, to make it happen. So this is a very exciting time for, for imaging. And those of you who think, oh, we already have a billion cameras, how, how much is it going to change? Uh, you'll be extremely surprised uh, what, what you will see just in the next two to three years. Uh, And these 3D cameras are also being used in uh, TV studios, where you may want to insert uh, some virtual objects um, uh, in the scene. So uh, traditional mapping, you just replace what's the background. Uh, You know, maybe you have a blue screen and you replace the background. But here, you can put something in front and behind the person with the right occlusion order. (laughs) So we'll study these things. Uh, we'll be spending a lot of time about cameras for uh, human-computer interaction. This is, this is a topic of always uh, a lot of interest um, and you know we look at different types of cameras camera looking at people, camera looking at fingers such as the uh, frustrated total internal reflection, FTIR uh, how optical mouse works anato pen uh, and so on different types of motion capture uh, V uh, and so on and We'll also look at what are the type of uh, camera-based HCI projects that are interesting, and some of them are just very 20th century. Okay? And, uh, and, and this, is, this, is, this is very interesting, because if you go to places like uh, SIGGRAPH emerging technologies, where people are really combining the latest generation of algorithms and hardware, uh, you'll see over time which projects are interesting and which projects are just stupid and boring. Right? and this is there's some really really common ones and uh, those of you who are doing this for projects is perfectly fine but if you're thinking about using it for research then you know think about it this is this is something you should avoid because it's been done to death uh, the most common one I have to say is where something moves and the music changes okay? <laughs> just get out of that business all right uh, another one is you' going to Uh, you're going to write some I say application where it's going to depend on detecting you know some skin color or something something Uh, it's not going to work okay you might be able to show it as a demo but as research it's not going to work when the lighting changes or the orientation changes and so on Uh, another very common excitement is I'm going to take a light and put a stereo camera and track it and create a 3D uh, path of it done to death uh, there are uh, there are things you can buy for $100 that will do it for you. Um, and when there's a product, it's not worth doing research on the same, same problem. Um, again, segment a finger or a face by, you know, putting some kind of a glove or something for, for segmentation. Um, some artistic interactive displays, uh, you know, I can wave a hand and change something. Don't worry about it. A lot of people know how to do it. Um, and... The, the problem with a lot of these demos, as you'll see, is that you can build this demo and you'll be, you'll be able to get some people excited about it. And that will give you this positive reinforcement that, oh, this is the kind of stuff I should be doing. Because you know, uh, you can impress some people all the time <laughs> and you can impress all the people for some time, <laughs> but not all the people all the time. And of course, the word was not impressed in the original quote. Uh, and just remember that so uh, oh. so what we're going to do in this class is, what's the solution <laughs> yeah exactly exactly. Well, you have to attend the whole uh, semester to listen I quick
0: question on the 4 HCI camera what's the current status uh, of like the gaze estimation of, uh, in that it kind of falls under
1: that right yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that as well in the class and uh, there are some really good, good solutions but I think it's still the gaze tracking is still a pretty challenging problem so that, I think that's worth still exploring um, and again this is not an offense to anybody if you're doing it as a class project it's perfectly fine but uh, just, let's just be honest you know it's, it's uh, when you are when an acquaintance we praise each other's work and when you're friends we, you know, we, we criticize and you know we're just going to be very very honest about it and see what we can learn and and what we can do next, right? So, the solution is you have to change the game. You want to try to build things that are robust. They do kind of things that nobody else can do and they allow you to do things that are not possible to the scammers, right? Um, So, we just want you smarter sensors, smarter processing and what you create should be just magic. Not in terms of its application, but in terms of its basic building blocks. And hopefully through this class, you'll realize there are hundreds and hundreds of solutions that you could be using, instead of using some cheap camera that's available, and just because you have the SDK for it, or just because the device is available, you're, you're using it. You know, let's get away from that, and let's try to build something that's unique and new, okay? Any questions on this one? Question? Uh, yes.
0: So- if you want to build stuff, like building a new camera or like, uh, changing the motion or the shutter and stuff like this, so what are the components are available? Like, that,
1: that's, are a to... that's a great question. So let me just repeat uh, Dina's question. If you really want to do all these things, what are the components that are available? Can I just snap, slap together a sensor and a light source and all this uh, electronics? Uh, the answer is it's not always that easy. Unfortunately, it's not, you know, I wish Canon would just come out with, you know, a Lego for cameras. And, and, you know, just, just sell that. And I'm sure they'll sell, you know, millions of those. Uh, but because then you can create your own things. Uh, but unfortunately, it's not available. At the same time, what I've seen, especially at Media Lab, are people are extremely innovative. And they go and pick pieces from different places. I think Dan has been looking into that. Uh, the other, and Spark Fund has been, has been very supportive. Um, in, in, they, can, they sell camera modules for 3 to $9 now. Uh, you can buy a full-fledged camera for $3. Unfortunately, there's not much you can change about it. Uh, but then you can go to companies like Point Grey and buy a little bit more expensive solution, maybe 500 to to $1,000, and they'll give you more uh, access to it. So, I mean, all the projects that we do here, we are not building our own sensors. We are not building our own uh, chip, processing chip. We're putting pieces together from different places. And, uh, you know, we are definitely on the bleeding edge. So, if you want to build something unique, there is no solution available. You can just buy a kit uh, right now to do it. Um, I know uh, JB has been interested in building a, uh, what do you call it? Um, what kind of camera? Open source camera? Or?
2: Yes, and I'm actually working with a company in New York City that is doing kind of Lego for cameras, but, but it's very slow, and it's still uh, it's of like the box. Right. It's not this small module that you can program in wireless and everything, but right. it's already a good start to, to go to take off the at Right.
1: Yeah, so uh, you know, so th- there are a lot of efforts in that. So I'm, I'm glad, uh, good to he- I'm glad to hear about 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 uh, your work. And then Stanford uh, Professor Mark Lavoy and his group has been also proposing uh, an open source uh, uh, camera architecture, um, and they also ran into the same issue of how can they uh, get some of the chip makers and, and lens makers and all that excited to put this together. So they're just getting started, and I'm, I hope that movement will will continue. We have a lot of our own plans here, uh, which we'll be disclosing in, in coming weeks. Um, and it should be possible to, and there was a time uh, when it was very cool to hack around with your car, right? In the 70s and 80s, like, you're a cool guy. If you fix your car, and you put new things. Now people say, okay. And then there was a time when it was very cool to build electronics, you know, cool electronics, do something with robots. And people say, ah, that's okay, I can just back it. And what's going to happen now is we're going to get into the physics of these things. Uh, not just the, you know, the chemical engines and, and the electronic hardware, but we're going to get into the physics of it, whether it's, you know, UV light, whether it's, you know, chemical elements or whether it's a sensor. And the next generation of kids uh, who want to be cool are going to build things that just create magic. So I'm really excited about this whole, uh, whole area. In fact, there's a group at uh, Columbia University, um, uh, Professor Sri Nair, and uh, he's putting together a, um, a, um, uh, I forget the name of the project, but it's also kind of a Lego for, for, for cameras. Um, and uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. They're trying to create a whole uh, uh, high school curriculum based on Canvas. So it's very exciting. So, you know, we look at how uh, Jeff Hans' project uh, was developed. Uh, and remember, his paper came out only in 2005. Uh, that's the very first time he, he disclosed it. And, and uh, uh, after that, as you know very well, it's, it's everywhere. John King is using it on CNN to say, see how Obama is doing versus uh, uh, McCain. And it's just everywhere. Uh, beautiful piece of technology, uh, a very old idea that's used in lots of other... Uh, environments, uh, and we'll study that. Um, and you can know,
0: I going, can I ask a quick question? Yeah. Yeah. So, if this is a camera, mm-hmm. are sort of
1: all touch screen displays essentially cameras? That's a great question. That's a great question. So this one, in a way, is still using a traditional camera. You know, when John King is playing on CNN with all that thing, what you don't realize is that behind him he requires a lot of space to put a camera and a real uh, projection screen. Mm-hmm. right? It's not just looking, walking up to some thin LCD and, and playing with
0: it. I mean, so if I have two pieces of glass that I'm pressing on right. and I'm detecting, you know, which, which wires are actually touching each other. Right. I've never thought of that as a camera before. So <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about it right now maybe it's sort of kind of like... Certainly. Oh, I,
1: that's I'm the way I'm you should be thinking. That. A camera is not a two-dimensional sensor. Mm-hmm. It's just zero-dimensional, which is the point... One dimensional, a line or a curve, mm-hmm. two dimensional, three dimensional, we'll see eight dimensional sensors. Let's but we usually think of cameras as sensing light, not sensing, you know, pressure. Mm-hmm. But you can convert pressure into light. So, Chemo, I don't know if he's here, he'll come and give a talk about how his device works. And what they basically do is, they have a, uh, they have created this surface. It looks like jello, and And... Um, and they have built some really, really beautiful demos. Uh, I think, I believe it's going to come in a couple of weeks and uh, and show this. And what this uh, Jello-like device does is I can put my finger on it and it transfers that into a highly visible impression. And then, in very simple words, CISB takes a photo of that with changing lighting direction. Uh, and they can create this very, you know, mic- uh, millimeter or micro... Multi-micrometer scale objects, and then take take photos of that. So yeah, you, you know, you always need a transducer. A camera is uh, converting photons into electrons, but you could have other transducers. You know, pressure into electrons or pressure into photons. Yeah. I
0: think we he's talking about resistance grid, capacitance grid, and such mm-hmm. interfaces. And mm-hmm. Yeah, those do kind of Well, I mean, but, right. but, yeah. but 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 a camera is sort of some generalized. You know, we sometimes think of any kind of sensor that, that can give rich information as a camera right.
1: maybe the other way of phrase is that uh, what, is, uh, uh, what sensors can give you visual information mm-hmm. and then yes whether it's a resistive or capacitive or inductive mm-hmm. it still could give you some geometric information mm-hmm. so, but although we won't be studying them as such we'll be studying more based on whatever happens to photons uh, but then, you know, going beyond that, how can you create something out of a thin screen? And this is uh, Matt Hirsch, uh, uh, that was his class project last year, in this class, and he started thinking about it in the class, and he built an initial prototype for his final project. And this, of course, how now has become a SIGGRAPH paper, part of his master's thesis. He won the student research competition this year, just out of this class, from, from last year. And we'll, we'll study how that works. Uh, and then we studied things like this Anoto pen which uh, has uh, a grid of dots that are slightly misplaced with respect to the center of uh, its its position. And every block of I believe uh, six by six is unique. And uh, just with this grid of six by six, they can create sufficiently unique codes so that if you uh, create paper with this code uh, and just lay it out, it will cover half the, the land area of the US. So they can print many, many, many papers with this course printed on them. Uh, and a pen has a camera that looks at this 6x6 six six code and figures out its unique location in a coordinate system that could span you know, 1,600 kilometers by 1,600 kilometers. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really unique. Uh, and then, this way, you know where the pen was, on which page, on which expert coordinate. Uh And this is a way to basically record uh, the, 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 the strokes that you can try. Yes, Jim. It's also, so I
2: work with this company, there are uh, 200 people and uh, more than half are lawyers. There are 250 patterns on this. So it's interesting to see the context of this. So it's very difficult actually to hack it or to be able to uh, uh, go beyond
1: the NDK or what they propose you to do. Right. It's a very challenging sport. But I think
2: SET has license. You have license, but you cannot go, especially in terms of hardware, beyond what they are doing. Exactly. Maybe you would like to do different
1: kinds of optics and different kind of things. Right. So maybe that should be a project, how to get around the patent. (laughs) <laughs> how to <laughs> invent technology, technology that gets around that problem? Just question here. This is it. Right? Oh, you have one. Oh, excellent. Do you mind passing it around? No. Yeah, just pass it on. All right. Uh, and then we'll talk about Bo uh, which is a project with uh, Ankit Mohan, Grace Wu uh, Quinn here, and Professor Hebra who was here last year. And the idea is, you know, how can we create, uh, how can we exploit properties of cameras uh, for objects that are very far away? How can we add intelligence to the world so that the world is more compatible with billions of cameras uh, people are carrying? And I won't go into the detail, but the basic idea is to convert a point uh, that in sharp focus looks like something that is the size of uh, 3 millimeters by 3 millimeters and take an out-of-focus photo and convert a circle of confusion into circle of information. Uh, and we'll look at uh, motion capture solutions for FCI, uh, some other solutions we have built here for kind of inverse optical motion capture, um, and some other FCI devices. So, uh, we'll spend a lot of time on, on that. So, uh, an announcement here, uh, Shahram Izadi, who is, who is uh, one, of the, one of the leaders in uh, using cameras for HCI, is giving a talk, actually on Monday, this changed, uh, on Monday at 4 p.m., um, I believe in the Roth room. And he's the inventor of, um, uh, if you're familiar with Microsoft Surface, which has which is a, a tabletop surface with a projector and camera underneath. Uh, he built a version that's a variant of that, uh, where um, they put a screen. Uh, the screen is actually not diffused, but it's switchable. It switches between a diffuse screen and a transparent screen electronically. So in one frame, you're projecting an image on it and you can see it on the tabletop. In the next frame, it switches to become completely transparent. And the camera underneath can see the world through this diffusing through the screen. And you can do some gestures on top. And again, in the odd frame, it goes back to being a diffuser. So he'll be talking about that. Uh, he just uh, 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 received the tr 35 award from Technology Review. Uh, so he's here in town for that, and he'll give this presentation uh, on Monday at 4 p.m. I believe I sent out an announcement, but I'll, I'll send out one more. And our own uh, Pravin Mistry uh, who built this really beautiful uh, Sixth Sense uh, display, also got a you know, TR35 award. So those of you who are not familiar with his work, you know, really great uh, HCI projects can lead to TR35 awards. <laughs> Alright, then we'll spend quite a bit of time uh, talking about uh, scientific imaging, uh, and computational imaging in sciences, and uh, this is something that I've heard a lot of times. Uh, You know, new instruments lead to new discoveries. Um, And in the 20th century, the most most important instrument was a computer, right? Uh, And what we might see in the future, you know, in my biased opinion, is the most important device Will have is a really important imaging mechanism. We don't know what it will be, but it could be you know, some permutation of a combination of what we are studying here. Uh, so, computational imaging has led to, you know, it has just transformed uh, our our world. Uh, unlike a lot of fields in we know which are really important. Uh, uh, I mean, if you think about Nobel prizes. Um, you know, my background is in computer vision and graphics, uh, and there have been no Nobel Prizes in computer vision graphics, and not even Turing Awards in computer vision or graphics. Pretty sad. But if you think about imaging, there have been tons of Nobel Prizes in just purely imaging mechanisms. i I'm we'll really be studying them. Uh, face contrast microscopy, a lot of uh, uh, CT scanning and MRI and so on. So, there's... I don't know why important fields like graphics and vision are not getting as much attention because we are solving very important problems as well. But maybe it's not being pitched right or there's something more there. Anyway, so we'll study computational imaging uh, in terms of medical imaging, astronomy, uh, applied physics and, and biology and a lot of these ideas um, are, um, as I said, applicable across different fields whether it's photography, HCI, computer vision and so on. So the study of tomography, confocal uh, microscopy, um, and so on. All right. So let me switch over to today's topic.